I did a uh, YouTube poll earlier today. The question that I asked was, what is the most important aspect of the Christian life? What's the most important aspect of the Christian life? The title of our message today is, One Word That Changes Everything. So I gave four possibilities. Sharing the gospel. What's the most important aspect of, our, of the Christian life? Sharing the gospel. Uh, seeking God through prayer. Walking in love. Living a life of worship. There were 46 people who responded. 50% said sharing uh, with the gospel. 17% said seeking God through prayer. 22% said walking in love. And 11% said life in worship. Now, what do you think it is? It is prayer. I mean, it was, that's funny. It is um, walking in love. And here's the reason it's walking in love. Because if you don't share the gospel in love, it's pretty much going to be unfruitful. If you don't seek God in prayer out of love, it's going to be ineffective. If you worship him, but you're not worshiping him out of love, then it's ineffective in really being able to go before his throne and worship him. So love is the most, and I want to make that case today. I just don't want to say that. I want to make the case to you today that love is the most important thing for us to do. That should be our highest priority. And there is a reason for that that is revealed in the study that we have here today. The, um, there are four words that, are, that were introduced at the beginning of this chapter that Paul's going to cover throughout this section of practicality. The first word we studied last week, which was freedom. We of all people are the most free. Paul said, stand fast in the freedom that you have been given. And we talked about using our freedom for good and not for evil. We talked about using our freedom for edification, that we could use our freedom to do things that are neutral. We could use our freedom to do things that harm us or don't help us. We could use our freedom for things that are going to edify and as we're going to see today, not as an opportunity for the flesh. The second one that he covers is in the spirit. The word spirit is brought up. And we're going to learn that if we walk in the spirit, this is a great promise from God's word. If we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That is such a powerful promise. And we should endeavor to walk in the spirit just because of that. Because it says, I will not fulfill the lust in the flesh if I'm in the spirit. That means when you are fulfilling the lust of the flesh, you are not walking in the spirit. That's our study next Wednesday night, by the way. The third word that's brought up is faith. Living that life of faith. It is by faith that we are saved. The Bible says it's impossible to please God without faith. And if we're going to li live a life pleasing to him, we have to do it in faith. And then finally, love is brought up. And that's the first one that he begins to cover here. The importance of of love, that we should endeavor to serve God in love. Now, you can't live a life pleasing to God by keeping rules. You can't live a life pleasing to God by keeping the law. Why is that the case? Because you're going to fail. And if you are keeping score, what score are you going to keep? How many times do you have to do good compared to how many times you do bad? How many times do you have to do good for the time that you did bad? And where do you find that kind of guidelines within the scripture to be able to say, I'm now living a life pleasing to God because I've done only two bad things and I've done eight good things. In fact, I think Paul would argue the opposite of that, that the two bad things that you did actually wipe out everything that you did that was good when it comes to receiving a reward from God or receiving something from God. And so that's why trying to work to earn something from God is so bad. If I work 
for him because I love him, because I want to do things for him. That's something entirely different. But if I'm doing works to be saved, if I'm doing works to get payment back from God, why do we even want any of that taking place? So Galatians 5.14 says, all the law is fulfilled in one word. Now it goes on to give us a phrase, and we'll look at that in a few moments, but the one word that he means is love. All of the law is fulfilled in one word, and that word is love. That's Galatians 5.14. It's in our text today. And in other words, we are not under the law, but we fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And that's from Romans 8. We'll read that verse here in a few minutes, that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled and it gives us when they're fulfilled. How do I now fulfill the righteous requirements of the law? In the Old Testament times, I know what you had to do. You had to keep the law the best you could. And then you had to take sacrifices to cover up your sin, but wouldn't take them away, but would only cover them up. And we know from the New Testament that they are a type of the sacrifice that Christ would give who could take away your sins and forgive you completely. Now let's, con uh, now let's consider love before we break down our text. The importance of love cannot be overstated. In Matthew 22, 36 through 40, a lawyer comes to Jesus. What kind of a question do you think a lawyer would ask? He asks, what's the greatest law? And so Jesus tells him, he says, this is um, Matthew 22, 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. That is the first and great commandment. That's the first one, to love God with everything you have. And the second is like it, and this is from Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just in case you think there's not anything worthwhile studying in Leviticus, Jesus quotes the second most important commandment coming from Leviticus. You shall love the Lord your God as yourself. Now, this verse isn't saying that you have to love yourself before you can love other people. I can't believe how many times I've heard that said in Bible studies, mostly on the radio, that, you know, this is telling us you got to love yourself first because you can't love yourself because you're going to love other people like yourself. No, the statement assumes you love yourself. And I think you take 100 people and 99 of them love themselves. You might have an outlier who despises themselves, but the vast majority of people are in love with themselves. And so love other people like yourself. And he says this is the second commandment. And on it, listen to this, hangs all the law and the prophets. So that's even in the Old Testament times. Jesus is under the law. He's talking to people who are under the law. The law is still enforced when he uses these words. Loving God and loving people on that hangs all of the law and the prophets. In the Old Testament, it's how you could fulfill the law the best way, by loving God and loving people. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says, now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. I call these three great things. It is by faith that you are saved. We are saved by the grace of God through faith. So how great is, is faith? Well, we don't get into heaven without it. So it's extremely important. How important is hope? I, I, I think you can't live without hope, really. I think you won't live very long without hope. Hope is an essential for, for life. Certainly for a quality of life, hope is an essential. Now there is faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, the Bible says. 
Listen to what 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 says about it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels. You ever think about a heavenly language, an actual angelic language? Though I speak with the, and, and could you imagine speaking in every tongue, every language in the world? Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You could speak in every language. Some of you here speak in more than one, more than two. You can speak in every language of the world and the heavenly language. And if you don't have love, you're only making noise. That verse itself would tell me the most important thing for me to do is love so that whatever language I'm speaking in, it can be significant. The next thing it says in verse two, and although I have the gift of prophecy, that means you can speak for God and I understand all mysteries. Imagine being able to explain every mystery, even every biblical mystery and have the gift of knowledge or understand all knowledge. Imagine having all knowledge, just having that, that, that alone, just knowing everything, being a real know-it-all. You know it all. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. Again, just a, just a perfect trust that you could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. The first one, you're just making noise. The second one, you are nothing. That which gives you significance before God is the love in your life. I don't think I'm misreading that. I am nothing. Even if I have all of these spiritual achievements, I am nothing if I don't have love. And finally, he says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, if you give everything you have away to feed the poor and your body to be burned, That'd be the greatest sacrifice there could ever be for someone. But have not love, it profits me nothing. There's no profit in giving away everything you have if you don't have love. Love then becomes that major thing in our lives. Now, he's going to return to it at the end of his text. I want to cover the text here in Galatians, talk about what Paul's talking about. And when we get to the end of it, we're going to return to the idea of love fulfilling the law. We have a few more verses to look at. All right. So we'll start at Galatians 5, verse 7. He says to them, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, if you've been with us in the study of Galatians, then you know that Paul preached to the region of the Galatia. They received the gospel through Paul. They were saved. Churches were planted. People, uh, elders were put into place. And then Paul moved on. And when Paul moved on, these legalists, snuck in, unaware, taking advantage of people, acting like they were a part of the body, and they began to tell them that they needed to keep the law. And there's just something about doing works that our flesh likes. False doctrines that include works, we just kind of like that. I, I, I think maybe it's because we want to take credit for it partially. And you might say, well, if, if you're baptized when you're saved, that's not, you're not taking credit for it, but, but you, got, you are. Well, I got baptized. That's why I know I'm really saved. When in reality, anybody can get baptized. Doesn't mean you're saved at all. The reality is you have to be born again. And that's not through water baptism. It's not through raising your hand. It's not through prayer. It's through receiving Christ. The thief on the cross did it by saying, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. It's an honest heart that pours out to God and cannot be any work. Otherwise, there could be people that don't have genuineness, that, don't, that have some work that would make it in. 
So he says, you ran well. They were running well. But these, these false teachers snuck in secretly to spy out their liberty, Paul says, and they, they spread their false gospel that they needed to keep the law. And it sounded good to them. Oh, yeah, we need to become Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. Jesus went to the law. In, in the Gospels, it says that it was his habit to go to the synagogues on Saturday, on the Sabbath day. So they would go, Jesus went to the synagogue. That was his habit. And they were like, yeah, okay. And some of them became Jewish. The men became circumcised. The women found their Jewishness by marrying men that had been circumcised. So they, they bought this hook, line, and sinker. And last week we saw that Paul said, you have been estranged from Christ. You who have been circumcised for your salvation have been estranged from Christ. So he says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, it was these people that snuck in. When Paul talked to the Ephesian elders on the beach on his way to Jerusalem, he said, he cried in front of them. And he said, I know ravenous wolves are going to come in and men are going to rise up in your presence that are going to draw people to themselves. Those two things happen. People come in to spy out your liberty. They come in with the purpose to deceive you. And among us will raise some people who will want their own way and are teaching their own thing and want to draw people to themselves. And so we have to be aware of it. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And then he says, this persuasion, speaking of these legalists, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. It doesn't come from God. These guys showed up and it wasn't from him at all. And then he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, this is a very important principle when it comes to false teaching. It's a very important principle when it comes to us making sure that we're standing in the truth. When the disciples came to Jesus on Mount Olivet and said, Lord, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? Jesus says to them, beware that no one deceives you. We have a responsibility to make sure that we are not deceived. And the closer we get to the end of the world, the more deceivers there are. The Bible expressly says that in the last days, many will fall from the faith, that there will be false teachers and men will, he will stack up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. Our world is full of false teachers. The church is full of false teachers. There's pretenders who are not really Christian, who look Christian, act Christian, and smell Christian. And if you take even a little bit of what they're doing, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You get a little leaven in a lump, and it goes through the whole thing. So you bring a little leaven into your faith. You say, well, I know that this guy's a false teacher, but I like what he says. I like what he does. And so you bring it in, and you open yourself up, because pretty soon, your discernment isn't able to tell what's right and wrong. And that's why it's good to not listen to false teachers at all. You end up thinking, well, I'm okay listening to them. I'll listen to them because I know what's right and wrong. But are you, it, are you at the point where you will never be deceived, where it's, it's impossible for you to be deceived? And that's why when we, we identify someone as a false teacher, that we should not listen to them. A little leaven leavens the whole lump and it brought them out of the kingdom of God, according to Paul. But Paul said this to them, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. He's saying, I have confidence in you that you're gonna do what's right. He's been telling them what to do here and he's upset with them. And I have confidence in the Lord. He has not only has confidence in them, but that God will work in them. They'll listen to what Paul says and they will come back. 
But then he turns to these legalists, to these false teachers, to these men that are drawing people to themselves instead of pointing towards Christ. And he says, this is probably the strongest part of the book of Galatians. So he says um, uh, that you would have no other mind. And then, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment. The one who snuck in, the one who's caused you trouble is going to bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Obviously, these false teachers said Paul's Jewish, Paul's a Pharisee, Paul's circumcised. He preaches circumcision still. So they were lying about Paul. And this is part of what false teachers do. They twist the truth. Peter brings this up about Paul, that Paul says things that are hard to understand and people twist it as they do the rest of the scriptures. And by saying that, Paul, Peter, gives Paul the status of scripture as they do the rest of the scriptures. And so they were saying, obviously, when, but the reason Paul says that, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? He's saying, I don't. They're, they're persecuting me. They hate me. If I taught persecution, why would that be the case? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. He says, if I'm teaching circumcision, people aren't going to be offended at the cross. And then he says, this is his own personal opinion here. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. They want to circumcise you, Paul says. Why don't you go and just become a complete eunuch? Now, there are a lot of eunuchs in their day, a lot of eunuchs in, in all kinds of different religions. And so Paul is simply making that statement. He says, they want to trouble you. I wish that they would go all the way and cut themselves off. It's pretty clear, pretty direct, and pretty brutal. Now, that makes all the more the next few statements even more profound because that doesn't sound very loving. Paul isn't saying, you false teachers, I just love you. I just want you to get, you know, get things. He's upset. But they've come in and they've, they've twisted things and they've taken people away from Christ. And so he says, brethren, you have been called to liberty only do not let your liberty be an opportunity for the flesh. Now, here again, he returns to the topic he did in the first seven verses, which is stand fast in the freedom by which Christ has made you free. We of all people, last week we talked about this, we are, we are free. We are free from death. We are free from sin. And we have all the freedoms that everybody else has. We as Christians have more freedoms than anyone. And we use our freedom for edification. We also want to consider our brethren that our liberty doesn't cause somebody to stumble. We didn't talk about that last week. We'll talk about that at another time, that we want to be considerate and caring. It doesn't say don't allow your liberty to offend somebody. Somebody may be offended by your liberty, but the worst thing is causing someone to stumble by your liberty. That's the worst thing. If you feel liberty to do something, but you cause someone to stumble in their faith, that's not walking in love towards that person. But here he says, don't use it as an occasion for the flesh. And this is what our liberty can do. But not only in the way that we might think about it, when we think don't use your freedom as an occasion to sin, but an opportunity for the flesh being that you would do works for salvation. These people believe that they can do things to be saved. That's their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. 
It's another way for Paul to say, you cannot be saved by the law. To keep the law is a work of the flesh, not the spirit. And so don't use your opportunity as an opportunity for the flesh. But then he says this, but through love, serve one another. Now he gets into how we're supposed to be living, that we are to serve one another through love. First of all, let's consider though serve one another. In John 13, 15, for uh, Jesus said, for I've given you an example that you should do as I have done. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He had gotten up from the table on the night he was arrested after giving them communion. He had girded a towel on, put a towel on, and then he washed their feet. And when he was done, he said, do you see what I've done? Now do the same. And blessed are you if you do them. He's not advocating foot washing ceremonies. He's saying that we are to serve one another. Instead of looking out for our own interests, Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but for the interest of others. You are to look out for your own interests, but also for the interest of others. And don't do anything out of selfish ambition. So living for others, serving one another is important, but we're not to do it to gain something. There's all kinds of reasons why you might serve. I remember the first time that I ever met Pastor Chuck Smith. It was up in Cottonwood. We had planted the church down here and um, it was only a couple of years into it that they had the Arizona Pastors Conference in Cottonwood. And so I went up to the conference and all of us Arizona pastors are sitting around talking to Pastor Chuck after dinner. And they had a Bible school in Cottonwood. And so the students from the Bible school were, had served us and they were starting to clean up. And right in the middle of us talking to Chuck, he got up and started grabbing our plates and started cleaning things off with the kids. And all of us guys looked around and we all jumped up, started grabbing plates. Next thing you know, there was a whole bunch of them that were grabbing plates and doing it. Now, what was Pastor Chuck's motive for doing it? I don't know. I can't really say, right? Motive in his heart? Probably because he's a servant. And so he gets up and begins to serve. Maybe to show us that we shouldn't expect people to serve us as pastors, but we should be serving other people. I know why I was doing it because Pastor Chuck was doing it and I wasn't going to sit there while Pastor Chuck was doing it. So I knew what was in my heart when that happened. And it wasn't an honest, sincere desire to really serve. But we do want to have that honest, sincere desire to be serving others because we're called to it. Now, this he says to serve them in love. We serve them with the right attitude. In John 4, 8, it says, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This means every legitimate Christian loves. This is agape love. This is the love that you make a decision to love. It's the love that you, you love with that is unconditional. It's not the romantic love. It's not the feeling of love. It is a choice to love someone. Love is something that you do, the great theologian Clinton Black said. Don't know how many times I've used that over the years. You might not even know what song I'm talking about. Some of you do. 1 Peter, um, 1 Peter 4, 8 says, um, yeah, 1 John 4, 8. Then 1 Peter 4, 8 says, and above all things, think of that, above all things. We ask, what's the most important thing for a Christian? Above all things, 
have a fervent love for one another. Think about the way that's worded. Above all things, have a fervent love for one another. He isn't just like, and it's important that you love one another. Above everything, have a fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. And I love that concept. It means that we can interact with each other and we could offend one another and we may even sin, step on people's toes. But if we're really walking in love, then that's going to be okay because love covers a multitude of sins. Colossians 3.14, another verse like it, but above all things, put on love. So instead of be fervent in love, above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. You want to be perfect in your walk with Christ? You want to please God? You cannot do it without love. And this is so much better than trying to please God by doing the right things. Because if I love you and I treat you like I love you, then that easily fulfills the things of the law. And so I put on love, which is the bond of perfection. It's the way we achieve perfection by loving one another. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you. This is a new commandment over the 10 commandments, right? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, we all know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. This is how we know we are genuine disciples because we love one another, but it's the way they will know. What happens when someone comes into our church and they, are, they don't come from another church? They aren't Christians. Every once in a while when I'm greeting, someone will come to me and say, this is my first time ever in a church. Had that happen just a couple weeks ago. And I'm like, and the place didn't fall down. Didn't collapse on you. It's pretty amazing. But how are they going to tell that we genuinely follow Christ? If you visit another church, you're listening for certain things. You're looking for certain things. You're looking for what's said. You, you, got, you got a sense of what's going on. But if you just walk in off the streets and you're not familiar with Christianity, the only way that you would know, Jesus says, is the love we have for one another. This means love is part of our evangelism. It's part of the way we reach people for Christ by loving one another because they will know that we are his disciples by the love that we have for one another. Ephesians 4.2 says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. That's some pretty interesting words there. With all lowliness, humility, in gentleness, sometimes we can be harsh, in long-suffering, patience, suffering a long time, bearing with one another in love. You say, you don't know how long they've done that to me. Well, long-suffering. Bear with one another. The idea, bear with them. You're bearing with them in love. Now, here's what Galatians tells us. It goes on to say, after don't, not, don't use your liberty as an occasion for the flesh, for all the law is fulfilled in one word. That is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he's not confused. He doesn't think that the phrase is a word. The word is love. It's all fulfilled in one word, and that word is love. But he puts it in context. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, Romans 8, 4, this is the passage I was telling you that talks about the righteous requirements of the law being met. Romans 8, 4 says that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. The righteous requirements of the law. This is written to Romans. So this is well after the resurrection. This is well into the church being planted. The righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So we do fulfill the righteous requirements of the law when we walk in the spirit. Romans and Galatians follow the same path. They're talking about the same thing. And I'm going to show you that he's connecting it to love. In Romans 13, 8 through 10, this is a passage that expands on what Paul says when he says that love fulfills the law. Listen to what he says, Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except love. And a lot of people will go off on that and talk about not being in debt. That's not the context. Whether or not that's right or wrong, that's not the context. Owe no one anything but love. That's the context. Love is the context. The only thing you owe people is love, but you owe them love. Everyone, you owe them love. It's, it's not like, well, you know, I can make a decision to love that person, but I don't want to love that person. Or when you're not loving someone, you owe them love. Owe no one anything except love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Well, there's the same thing he said in Galatians. He says it here in Romans, but he expands on it here further. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if you're loving them, you're not going to steal from them. You love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled by walking in the spirit and us walking in love because it fulfills the law. We fulfill the law, the righteous requirements of the law when we walk in love towards one another. Now, Paul goes to the negative back in Galatians. His last verse here is, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. The opposite of love is cannibalism. That's what it says, right? But if you bite and devour one another, be, uh, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. All right, so he's not really talking about cannibalism. So speaking of Pastor Chuck, Pastor Chuck used to tell a story about a guy down in South America who raised fighting roosters. And he loved his roosters. And he would go out every day and he would see the individual cages where these roosters were strutting around and he actually bred them to fight. And he came out one day and there was one cage and all the birds were in the cage and it was full of feathers and blood. It was just destroyed. And the care, te care, the care keeper for the roosters came over and the owner said, who put these all in the same cage? He said, I did. I thought they'd been around for so long they would know that they're on the same team. The point of Pastor Chuck's story, true or not, parable or not, was we are a lot like those roosters in the same cage. We don't know we're on the same team. And we end up devouring one another. We end up attacking one another. 
We make lines. We draw lines. We try to destroy people. And I'm not speaking hyperbole here. I'm speaking the truth. Over the years, I've seen Christians go to battle, go to war, try to destroy one another. And it ought never to happen. It is the devouring of one another. It is not love. And it will, it will quash any opportunities that we have as a church when there's some huge division within the church. And every once in a while, you run into somebody who will say, well, we just want to be like a New Testament church. And I think, have you ever read the letters to the churches in the New Testament? There's one letter that's good. One letter. That's to the Philippians. Every other one has problems and troubles. Every other one of them. And, and the letter to the Corinthians is an absolute fright. We do not, if we had what's going on in our church, what was going on in, in, Corinth, in Corinth, we would not be a light to the city. And so it's really important for us to make sure that we walk in love and that we are not devouring one another. And if there is a faction that starts in the church, then put away that faction. Stop attacking them and begin praying for them. If you think they're doing something that is wrong, then pray for them. I think it is in the letter to the Philippians that Paul brings up Uida and he brings up two women. If it's not Philippians, it's one of his letters. I think it's Philippians. And he says, tell them to get along. And I love that Paul doesn't talk about the topic. He doesn't go, now this is this and this is that and this is that. Let me get in here and figure this out. Paul just says, tell these two women, he calls them by name, tell them to get along. Put away whatever it is that's causing such strife in the midst of the church and know that you're not walking in love. And if you are doing that, it's the flesh. It's the rising up of the flesh to attack and devour others. And I think it's extremely appropriate that Paul ends this section on love with this negative, do not bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. That that bitterness come in and, and problems would arise. So the opposite of love would be to attack each other. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. So three things in closing. You ran your race well, you're running your race well, then don't let someone who's a false teacher come in and put a little leaven in and leaven the whole up. Keep your doctrine pure. Rightly divide the Word of God. The Bible gives us exactly how we do that, comparing Scripture to Scripture, reading it in context. It's amazing how often the context will tell you the problem. I'm reading a book by Bart Ehrman now called Heaven and Hell. Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar who's a non-Christian. And so he made a statement about Jesus saying, there are some of you here who will not die until you see me in my glory. And then Bart Ehrman said something in his book to the, to the point of, and Jesus died, they died and never saw him in his glory. He died, they never saw him in his glory. So Jesus, what Jesus said wasn't true. However, if you just keep reading that passage, the very next thing that he says, the very, in context, the very next thing that he says is seven days later, he took Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain and was transfigured in front of them. And his robe shined brighter than any other robe. What did he say to them? Some of you are not going to die, but you're going to see him in his glory. They were up on that mountain and they saw him in his glory before they died. 
it's fulfilled in the text. I learned this really early when I made my way, first of all, through the Bible. I started in Matthew. I got to that passage where he said, some of you here are not going to die until you see me in my glory. And I had to stop reading because I thought these guys are all dead. And Jesus hasn't come back again because I read it through my eyes and ears, even as a, I was probably 15 years old when I'm reading it, 14, 15 years old. And when I came back to pick it up what I was reading, it was like, oh, I just should have read a little further. I would have gotten the answer. I think Bart Ehrman ought to know better too, by the way. New Testament scholar. He, he ought to know that you look at a, a passage in its context. And, and, and maybe he does. I don't know. I certainly don't want to speak to his, um, his motives. However, that really is important for us. People twist things. They take it out of context. Let's learn how to rightly handle the word of God so we cannot be deceived. Number two, make sure you are not listening to false teachers, which I ran into part of one. Run the race well. Make sure you're not listening to false teachers. And number three, let love always be the motive. If love is the most important thing to us, that's the thing we got to get right. If we're going to get anything right out of everything that's out there, you're going to get your worship right. You're going to get your prayer life right. You're going to get sharing the gospel right. If you get anything right, get love right. And everything else will fall into place. Everything will begin to happen. And even if you're doing it wrong, if you're doing it out of love, it covers a multitude of sins. I'm going to close with something I've said for years, which is I would rather do something wrong with the motive of love than to do something right with the wrong motive. And the reason for that is that love covers a multitude of sins. How far wrong can I be if the motive is love? I can't be way off base. I might be off base and what I do may be wrong, but if the motive is love, I can't do much damage. If my motive is other things, I can do all kinds of damage because I'm so easily deceived by my own heart. I'm so easily deceived by myself. May love be our, our earmark. May people know us by our love. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the richness. Thank you that you have clearly taught us that the most important aspect of the Christian life is love. And help us that we would live the way you've called us to. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit would take these truths and make them our, our spiritual life changing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.